Matthew's Gospel, and today we come to chapter 19, and we're going to read there verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. A large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and attested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive Uh, I'm sorry, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Well, we're looking at a passage here that Jesus expands upon that we looked at back, way back in, I think it was 2019 when we were in Matthew 5, when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But Jesus expands upon that teaching somewhat here uh, on the question of divorce. And the question arises, as many of the things that Jesus says arises out of the sinfulness of man's heart. You remember back a a few chapters where the disciples were going along and arguing about who was the greatest. And that spawned a whole series of teaching in Matthew 18 upon becoming a, a little child. Unless you become a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And guarding against sinning against one of these little ones, and so on. And what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, that, uh, that to become least is to become great uh, in the kingdom of God, to pattern ourselves after the Lord Jesus Himself. And this question uh, is also is uh, uh, asked out of a sense of the sinfulness of man. And so sometimes it was the disciples, sometimes it was Jesus' own followers, Sometimes it was the enemies of Jesus, but oftentimes, whoever they were, it was often arising out of a sinful uh, uh, question, a sinful desire. And the sinful desire in this instance is a desire to trap Jesus. He has come now into the region of Herod Antipas. Uh, They entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, so he's east of of, of Jerusalem toward the Jordan on the other side. And uh, he is now coming. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But he's not quite there. But he's in the area of Herodus, Herod Antipas. 
and you remember that, uh, that he, on the one hand, he liked to listen to the preaching of John the Baptist. He got a real charge out of listening to John the Baptist. But John the Baptist preached against his marriage to his brother's wife. While his other brother was still alive, she left him and married Antipas. And uh, John the Baptist was preaching against it, that it was unlawful for him to have his brother's wife. And so the, the, uh, the Pharisees thought that there might be occasion now, because Jesus is now in the territory of Herod, that uh, they could trap Jesus in his words. Because here was uh, uh, um, Herod uh, had taken his brother's wife his, uh, his brother and his wife were unlawfully uh, divorced. They, they were now in an unlawful marriage. And so they come up with this question to try to trap Jesus. So if he could condemn in his words Herod, he may meet with the same fate of John the Baptist. And they were always coming up with these questions. And uh, they spent a lot of time on them, you can bet. You can see them in their pharisaical boardroom around this table with all the papers spread out, with all the, 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 the teachings of the rabbis spread out all over. What is the most difficult question? What is a question that we can trap Jesus on? Later we'll look at uh, paying taxes to Caesar. That was another area where they tried to trap Jesus and uh, set him at variance with the the powers that be. And so they're trying to do here. They're trying to test Jesus by asking him this question. And so the question is, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What is Jesus saying? Well, they, they were, rather, what are the Pharisees asking? Well, there were these two schools of thought where it came when it came to divorce. A very... Uh, a strict view and a very liberal view. The strict view said that you could only divorce if, there were, if the husband found some perhaps sexual impurity in his wife before or after marriage. The, the, the other uh, view uh, basically said that you could divorce your wife for any number of reasons, very frivolous reasons, uh, even for spoiling the supper. And that's, that sounds uh, uh, ridiculous, but that was uh, what the, I think it was the Hillel school uh, taught, that uh, a man, if his wife displeased him in any way, he could divorce her. So there's a, a broad spectrum of uh, a very strict view and a very frivolous view. And so uh, if Jesus answered uh, against the idea of frivolity, uh, then maybe they would have a grounds to go to Herod and say, well, here's Jesus uh, uh, attacking uh, your marriage, attacking the relationship that you have. And, uh, and so, again, you can see the deceit. You can see the, the malice in the heart of man as they try to trap Jesus in his words. And so what Jesus does is what he often does. And what the writers of the New Testament do is that they go back, not to tradition, not to what this rabbi said or what that rabbi said, but go back to what the Word of God says. Jesus goes back to the original intention 
that God had for marriage in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And one of the things that it's important for us not to miss in this, what Jesus is saying, is the, the idea of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. That Jesus is quoting here, he's quoting Genesis, but not from what Moses said, but from the mouth of God. Jesus believed that the Bible was inspired. He believed in the historical reliability of Adam and Eve. And this is, this is how he frames uh, his, his discussion here. Have you not read? That's a good question for all of us. What's our Bible literacy like? Have we read the Bible? Do we read the Bible? And do we understand the Bible? And Jesus was coming at the Pharisees in that way. I mean, they walked around with Bibles strapped around their wrists and in little boxes on their head. And they would kiss the Bible and they would do a, And Jesus says to them, Have you not read? You're missing the point. What is God's original intention? And so one of the things that we are to realize about the Bible in this age of modern scientific discovery and, and uh, technology and so on and so forth is that we need to recapture a, a right understanding of the Word of God. Otherwise, we will sink. We're done for. Whatever else we may say about ourselves as a church or yourselves as Christians or families or whatever it is, if we do not believe what Jesus believed about this book, we're done. We will be eaten alive by the society in which we live. But when we believe that it is the Word of God, we will speak with authority. Jesus spoke with authority. He, didn't, he wasn't swallowed up by the interpretation of this rabbi or that rabbi. He, didn't, he wasn't intimidated by cultural trends or norms regarding divorce or anything else. But he could say, not timidly, but with great boldness, have you not read? Or in another place, he could say, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. Jesus uh, believed the Bible to be the Word of God. Do you believe it to be the Word of God? If we don't, it doesn't matter what else, whatever else we believe. It will soon crumble. And uh, what, what Jesus saw here was an attack in, in, in many places, as, as he does in, in, in other places, an attack on, the, on the, the authority of Scripture itself. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said. He's speaking, God, God is saying here. He's not saying Moses said. But God said. And he now quotes the Word of God. He quotes Genesis. So that the voice of Scripture is what? The voice of God. As he says in other places. David says through the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. What confidence we have, don't we? That we have the very Son of God and He fought and He lived according to the very Word that we have. 
That's wonderful. And so now he goes on to talk about what it is that the God said in the Scriptures. He made them male and female. He does here what Paul does. goes back to the origins. goes back to the beginning of all things as we saw there. What does a, a spirit filled church look like and that's what we were seeing in our study in Ephesians 5 to be a spirit filled church is to go back to the original intention of what God gave in other words what does a New Testament church look like what does a New Testament family look like what does a spirit filled family look like well, rather than reinventing the wheel and coming up with some New Testament idea as to what that looks like, Paul takes us right back to the Garden of Eden and says it's the intention that God had from the very beginning. And what the cross is all about is that God is simply restoring what was lost way back when. You see? That's why the New the New Testament talks about Jesus coming to restore all things. To regain for us what man lost when it comes to marriage, when it comes to work, when it comes to stewardship of the earth, whatever it may be, Jesus has come to recover that. And so that's why we get such so much reference to the Old Testament in the New because the wonder of it is, it's not Jesus you know, crossing off the old creation, throwing it away and starting with something else, but saying, I have come to make all things new. I have come to redeem, to buy back. That includes us. That includes the earth. That includes culture. That includes arts, music, whatever it is. And so Jesus points us back here to the original intention of God. He made them male and female. He is speaking here about God's original intention for marriage. And especially, uh, I, I think it's especially important in this month of Pride Month that we remind ourselves that no matter what the culture is saying, that the only acceptable expression of marriage that we are to condone or to recognize is that of male and female. Not male and male, not female and female. And not a, a numerous combination of all of those things in terms of polygamy, which is now on the ascendancy. Once one gets validation, along comes something else. And so now they're arguing for Polygamy. People making a case to marry themselves or any kind of concoction that the human mind can come up with. And so we, uh, it, it is something we must be uh, aware of and alive to. And that's why I say it, 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 it's no longer us going about living our own lives. It's, it's gone from a, a weekend to a week to now to a month. And now we're corporations and workplaces are forcing their employees to sign on to this. Do you recognize the validity of same-sex marriage? Do you recognize 
the validity of abortion. Now, these were in government documents not so long ago. Unless you signed on, you couldn't get your student grant and so on. So principalities and powers, friends, in the high places where the, the devil is at work and it's, we cannot any longer uh, simply stick our head in the sand. Uh, you can't, if you, if there was one time where you could put your head down if you didn't want to look at something that was objectionable, but now you even put your head down and you, it's at a crosswalk, uh, a pride flag. It's not only a flag flying on a pole, but if you put your head down not to look, it's on a crosswalk. It's, in other words, it's emblematic of the ferociousness with which these things are coming at us as a church. Churches are falling. Corporations are weaponized uh, to, uh, to uh, cause their employees to conform and so on. But Jesus is, is, uh, is speaking here about the fact that God created them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now the point of why Jesus uh, quotes that passage is not to go into all the ins and outs of marriage. I think the, the, the verse speaks for itself. There's a whole world of knowledge and information there. And the, the, these verses are so economic, aren't they? In other words... Uh, God packs so much implication into those few verses that we could spend a long, long time unpacking. But Jesus' original intention was to show the permanency of marriage and to show the violence of divorce. And it, it, it shows it, it, the reason behind why God says later on in Malachi as uh, uh, many of the Jews were divorcing their wives and marrying foreign wives, he was saying, I hate divorce. I hate it with all my soul. And because it was a tearing asunder of one flesh. Just as we might tear off an arm or tear off a leg. Jesus is saying that God has made them one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. And whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. And so, uh, it, it's a, an incredible contrast to what the Pharisees' question was. Is it lawful to divorce uh, uh, one's wife for any cause? And it's as if Jesus were saying, how far have we fallen? how far we have gone, that you, the teachers of the law, would actually have to say that. I mean, we're at the same point today where you have to state the obvious in law that a man is a man, a woman is a woman. And the people are coming up with all these sorts of questions and, and you sit back and you scratch your head and say, we actually have to say that today? We have to actually enshrine that in law. And you're, this is again what Jesus is saying here. 
This is why he's quoting what he is. He's saying, have we gotten to the place where teachers of the law are coming and having to ask me that question? Is it right to divorce your wife for no reason at all, for just a frivolous reason? Jesus would have said, and, and, this, and I think this is the, if the spirit in which he is uh, 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 speaking here. Where are we as a culture? Have you not read? <laughs> do, do you hear the spirit in what he is saying? Like, it's reminiscent of Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? That the everlasting God, the Lord, does not faint, neither is weary. <laughs> it's the same kind of spirit. Have you not read? That from the beginning God made the male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He's, he, he's quoting that, but he's using very intense language. Hold fast. Hold on. Cleave. It's the same idea when uh, 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 Ruth and uh, 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 Naomi were leaving uh, uh, their, their, their former country. And it, it said that Orpah kissed her mother, but Ruth clung unto her. And she said those beautiful words, Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you abide, I will abide. And so on. She clung unto her. Because there were things pulling at her, weren't there? Her affections for her family back home. The fear of the future. All of these things. She clung. She clung. She said, in spite of all of those uncertainties, I'm holding on. It's a beautiful picture. But it was, it, it, it's, a, it's a picture that has a, a pedigree that goes back a long way in the Bible. And this is what the language that Ruth was using the language of marriage, the language of cleaving, in spite of all the challenges. Jesus is not naive here. He's not trying to simplify the sin that uh, often characterizes marriages and the, the brokenness that often characterizes our lives. He's not doing that at all. But he's really holding up the standard that God has set for married couples. What his original intention was. And it's through His death on the cross that He now enables couples to realize that. No matter how broken the situation is, no matter how broken the home is, the cross, Jesus, the head of the home is now able to help recover what was lost. I love that verse. I think it's in Nahum. He shall restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And this is what this is Jesus' point here. Frivolous, you say? Divorce her for no reason at all? Where are we? Have you forgotten? Have you not read what God originally intended for mankind? And you, the teachers of the law, do you not know these things? Do you not understand these things? He was, he was highlighting really how far they had fallen. Again, I say we have fallen as a society. I don't think it takes a lot of thought to think that, right? That's not a controversial statement. 
that we have, we have tried to redefine humanity? Where do we go then? How do we stand against that? We've got to go back to the Word of God. We've got to get our bearings in the Word. Many of you will face those questions. And I've been hearing uh, uh, from some of you who have been facing those questions in the workplace. What do I do if they say this? And I've gotten this directive from my boss that we have to use uh, personal pronouns in when, I, when we're uh, you know, on our emails and things like that. What, what do we do? And, and what if I take a stand and lose my job? What then? The Word of God. Jesus went back to the Word of God and said, this, this, is, this is where we stand. In spite of any misgivings or dangers or fears that we may have of what the future looks like. As Luther said, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. I can do no other. Here I stand. I can do no other. An act against conscience is neither right nor safe. To call someone a him when he's a her is not right. And it's a violation of your conscience and no one should be asked to do that. No one. Lose your job over it. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to violate your conscience. Don't violate the truth. If you're forced to call someone you know is something else, lose your job over it. It's not worth it. Paul says we strive to have a good conscience at all times before God and man. Jesus is saying here, marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. The people of Israel violated that, didn't they? Through their multiple marriages to, to many different wives, the kings violated that. Solomon is seen as being someone who uh, 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 typified that. And he's not let off the hook. It tells us later on in the prophets how, uh, how uh, um, Solomon uh, fell because of the multitude of his wives. Now, I'll say to you what I said in Cape Traverse this morning, that I don't pretend to include everything that there is to say about marriage and divorce in 35 minutes. Neither do we say everything on any subject in 35 minutes. Sometimes there are circumstances that have to be thought through on an individual basis. And Jesus knows that. Jesus is simply going back. He's addressing a question on the frivolity of divorce. The fr how... how Loosely, people were understanding marriage. And he is, he is in that spirit coming to them and saying, look, this is God's standard. As the people of God, as the covenant people of God, that's always the standard that we are to try to reach. But they come back. They say, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? God commands this, but Moses commanded that. Jesus is saying, no, Moses is not commanding anything. 
Moses allowed divorce. Because though God's ultimate standard was one man and one woman for life, yet there is always the reality of sin. That we live in a broken, fallen world. And that if divorce is to take place, that certain protections must be given to the parties involved. Especially in the days when Moses wrote it, the protection of the woman. Because we all, as we know, if you are thrown out of your house and just the, the, the relationship ended over something nonsensical, and you weren't in a position then to marry again, or you lost your dowry. As a young woman comes into a marriage, she takes a dowry with her. And if she loses that, she is uh, not in a position then to marry thereafter. So the certificate of divorce protected the, the woman in the, in the marriage. Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, because there is sin in the world, God allowed Moses to, to give a certificate of divorce. To, to uh, 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 deal with that brokenness so that the one who was sent away might be sent away as someone who could still cope later on. One commentator said this, because of Moses' law, a man could no longer just throw his wife out. He had to write a letter of dismissal or a certificate of divorce. So she could remarry and reclaim her dowry. You see, she wouldn't be left out in the cold. This was a major step toward the civil rights for women, for it made a man think twice before sending his wife away. Now, it may not sound very romantic, but the husband may say, well, I'm going to lose this dowry if I send my wife away. I'm going to be economically hit hard. And so, you know, it's not the most, you know, something you'd find on a Hallmark card or anything like that, but you take what you get when people's hearts are hard and sinful. And in order to protect that woman from being violated as a single woman now, uh, where she could not find security for herself outside that relationship, this provision was made. So as this person says, the man might think twice before sending her away. Moses' words gives protection to the wife and limited the abuses of divorce. And so the, the, the disciples, they are seemingly overwhelmed here. They say, if this is the case. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Jesus goes on. Uh, because of your hearts, the, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now Jesus is, again, speaking to the situation that was posed to him by the Pharisees of divorce for any reason. And Jesus is saying here that that divorce is confined to sexual immorality within the confines of marriage. That it's allowed, not prescribed, not commanded. He's not saying you must divorce. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament shows us of a God wooing His wife back even though she was unfaithful to Him. Even though she had 
gone off with other lovers and so on. It was notorious. It was among the nations. And uh, yet, uh, it's, and so God Himself is giving the model of what it means to seek reconciliation at all costs before the divorce takes place. Paul uh, also uh, speaks of another reason, and that is desertion. That if a Christian marries a non-Christian, and the non-Christian wants to leave and wants to go, that the the, the wife or the husband should do all they can to make the marriage work. But if the other wants to leave, Paul says, let them leave, for you are not bound. And many have seen in that a second reason for uh, divorce. The marriage, then, that will subsequently result after that, Jesus says, is an act of adultery. That to marry someone else without having lawfully been divorced to begin with, that new marriage begins with an act of adultery. Does it continue on to be that? No. The marriage begins with adultery, but Jesus says here, He says, and marries another. In other words, that second marriage is a marriage. They are married. They have married another. They don't continue to be in a state of adultery before God. But it was initiated on those terms. That's what Jesus is clearly saying. And so the question arises here uh, in in the minds of Jesus' uh, um, disciples, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. They're overwhelmed by it. They say, well, if this is the case that, uh, of the, 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 the strict standard, and I mean, again, Jesus is just going back. He's not creating, recreating the wheel. He's going back to the book of Genesis. He's restating the spirit in which it was written. And so, they, the, the disciples are overwhelmed. And maybe you're sitting there this morning feeling overwhelmed. And you're asking yourself, well, what about this and what about that? What if the husband does this? And what if there's physical abuse? What if the, you know, there's emotional abuse? There's all sorts of things. And like I said at the beginning, 35 minutes, it's now 40. Uh, 35 minutes, 40 minutes is not long enough to go into all the ins and outs And this is not the final word. And physical abuse and all of these things are very serious. And many have made a case along those lines for a wife to remove herself from a situation where there are those abuses. Again, we can discuss the ins and outs of that Again, the time is short for us. But they're overwhelmed. Should we be overwhelmed? Where do we go when we feel, who is sufficient for these things? Or I feel very weak in my marriage. Or I feel very, you know, the foundation shaking or crumbling and so on. What, how do I approach this situation? Jesus has been speaking in the passage that we looked at last week, 
How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus said, not seven times. Seventy times seven. And if ever that was something to be applied, marriage is something that should be applied in. As common as getting up in the morning or brushing our teeth or having our breakfast. That ought to be the case where there is confession and forgiveness. That we ought to be as free with our forgiveness as the other person is with their confession. And that we delight in it. Why? Because we are looking to the cross. Jesus went on in that parable in chapter 18 of to talk of two men. One who owed, remember how much it was in modern equivalent? Billions of dollars? <laughs> he was forgiven the whole lot. He goes and finds a man who had owed him three months' wages. He begins to choke him. And Jesus says, you wicked servant. Or the, the, his, his Lord, the King, said, you wicked servant. I forgave you those billions of dollars, but this pittance, you couldn't find it in your heart to forgive? Do you not realize the enormity of the sin that you've sinned against me? And yet, you're willing to hold this against your husband or against your wife? You're willing to hold this against your friend or your, your sister or brother? You see, friends, it becomes for us. It's not downplaying the difficulties. Please don't hear me saying that. And the bitternesses and the hardships sometimes. But we are kingdom people first. It's not our happiness that is the most is the ultimate in our lives anymore. No, it's not. We are kingdom people. The work of the kingdom were always based on what makes me fulfilled or happy and so on. Nothing would get done. Missionaries would never go anywhere. They would never suffer long and hard in foreign countries. We would never give sacrificially. We would never do any of these things because we're making our own happiness and our own personal fulfillment the be-all and end-all. And so kingdom work would just stop. We're doing kingdom work in our marriages. Even if it's an unhappy marriage, even if it's a difficult marriage, it's kingdom work. We seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Not our happiness. Whether it's in a marriage, whether you're a missionary, whether you're this, you're that, you're the other, you're a kingdom person. You're a kingdom man or woman. And it's not your happiness, but it's the honor and glory of your Savior that is of most importance. That's why Peter talks about to the wife, she says, look, if you, you've got a husband that doesn't you know, believe that through your humble obedience, you're able to win your husband to the Lord. Your glorified husband, if, if, if it is a wife that is uh, unreciprocating in her affections or in her duties or whatever it is. And a husband, you are to love her as Christ loved the church. Just as the church was lost and unresponding and unlovely, Jesus gave Himself washing her with the water of the Word and with His blood, redeeming her, making her beautiful. That's kingdom work, you see, friends, going on. Has it changed? Is it now all you ever want, dreamed it would be? Maybe not. 
but you're doing kingdom work. You're seeing, you're, you're getting a closeness with Jesus. As the wife humbles herself before the Lord, even when it, the, those emotions or those duties are not being reciprocated back, she's a, she has a closeness with the Lord Jesus. She said, I know I've got a kinship with my Savior. The husband can do the same. I've got a kinship with my Savior. That's what Paul wanted the most. I want to know Him. The power of His resurrection. The fellowship of His sufferings. I want to know Him. And sometimes a marriage is that arena. Just as many other things can be the arena for kingdom work and kingdom growth and kingdom blessing. Who can receive this Word? They say. How do we do it? We keep the cross before us. We gaze upon... A few years ago, I think I told you before, I had an opportunity to speak at someone's wedding. I only had a couple of minutes. Uh, I didn't have time to go into a long spiel over uh, you know, what makes a great marriage or anything like that. But I thought I would say, go to church. Go to church. Why? Because you are continually soaking up the Gospel. You're keeping the cross. You're keeping the love of the bridegroom before you. And you're able then to take that back into your home. The last time we spoke on this topic, I quoted a statistic. And even if the statistic is a wee bit exaggerated, it may not be, I'm just saying even if it is, I think there's a lot of truth in it. That said, it was reported in America that one in four marriages undergo separation, and in some areas of the country, one in two. But where the family attends church regularly, it is one in 40. And in families where there, is, there are daily devotionals, it is one in 400. Now, like I said, even if that was mildly exaggerated, it's still a powerful statistic. As the old saying goes, and it's something that has been born out of experience, and not just some guy writing, the, the, the family that prays together stays together. It doesn't say that the family that prays together, everything's rosy and, and, and great, and, and you're celebrating all of that. No, it doesn't say that. Family that prays together stays together. Because now you're seeing your marriage in terms of the wider kingdom of God. Not just to see what she can give me or what I can give him. And if they we're not doing that anymore, all bets are off. Well, that's the way, the way the world thinks. But we're different. We're saying, I'm in this for the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost. That's why it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit unto your own husbands as, un as unto the Lord. As in the Lord. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord. For this is right. You see, everything is kingdom work now. Even the work of family. Everything is to the praise of His honor and glory. Even when your heart is breaking. Even when things are difficult. It's all to the glory and praise of His name. So while the Bible's teaching on marriage for some can be very difficult, we must hold on to the high view of marriage that God has given to us. And rejoice that God's will is being done. And that God's grace and God's love can be there in a most powerful way. 
Because while we realize that the standard is great, God's grace is even greater. Well, let's pray.